Good morning. All right, scripture, uh, would everybody please stand with me? The scripture today is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, you may be seated. So, if you were asked to describe what a Christian was, if somebody walked up to you and said, what is a Christian person, what would you say? What would you say? It's a good question, right? What is a Christian I only ask the question because there is, in truth, a lot of debate out there about what a Christian actually is. There are misconceptions, and there's really downright confusion about what a Christian is, about what a follower of Jesus is, about what constitutes a Christian person or a group of Christian people. Everyone, it seems, it seems today, has a claim on Christ in some way, shape, or form, but if we were really to get down to brass tacks, what does a Christian look like? What do they sound like? You don't need to smell them, but if you wanted to, what do they smell like? What, what, don't go around smelling one another. That was just a joke. If you take me that literally, you have a problem. This is an important question, I think. It really is. We, we don't often think about it. We kind of take it for granted, but I happen to believe that it's an important question because not because it's necessarily a great question to walk around and be asking outside of ourselves, right? To be walking around saying, is that person a Christian? I don't know, or is that person a Christian? But it's a very good question, and I think a penetrating one for our own hearts, to ask ourselves, what constitutes a follower of Jesus? What is a Christian person? If you've been with us for any period of time, you've probably heard me say, or you've read the scriptures, the book of Acts primarily, and you've seen that uh, early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They were called Christians first at Antioch, and that was a ways, at, uh, decades after Christians were walking around. And they didn't, and that didn't become to, come to be a popular term for Christians until later into the two and three hundreds. The early Christians were called, and you can see this in the Book of Acts, people of the way, people of the way. You see this if you just want to underline or write in your Bibles. In chapter 9, 19, 22, 24 of the book of Acts, there are all references to this people of the way. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, before he was the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul and he was running around persecuting the church in chapter 9, says specifically, I was a persecutor or he was persecuting people of the way. And the reason this is important, I think, is because early in church history, the defining characteristic of people who would come to be called Christians was their distinctness as a people 
who lived in a specific kind of way. They had uh, the thing that designated them as the people they were was that they had a very peculiar way of living, right? They had a peculiar way of life. And they patterned this way of life that they lived after their leader, a man who came out of a small town in Nazareth preaching a gospel or a good news about uh, this new way of living and about the forgiveness of sins. And they believed that this man's teachings were proved right when he, uh, he was raised from the dead, when he was resurrected. And they chose to follow him, convinced that through him, through his body, through his teachings, life in what is called the kingdom of God was now possible. God's presence and his power were now made available to them through this kingdom of God and through this person, Jesus. This is what the Bible is talking about when it uses that kingdom of God language that we can sometimes get a little confused by, I think, because that's all Jesus is talking about, right? I've come to proclaim or to pronounce the kingdom of God. The presence of the kingdom of God is now in your midst. These are all language that Jesus used to define what it was exactly he was doing. Jesus came preaching this good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what he said, essentially, was that everybody now, because of his presence, had access through his life to this abundant life that would, co- that would come through him. That now, because of his presence and his teaching, you could be connected to God, the source of life inside the kingdom of God. But I will tell you something, that this abundant life is not just a, uh, a free meal ticket. It was, in a very specific way, a way of life, a way that encompasses all of a person's life. It is not uh, simply things that you believe. It is a way of life. And early followers of Jesus believed this, and people noticed it, and so they called them people of the way, people of the way. But there is something really tragic that has happened to this gospel, this good news of Jesus in our day. There is a kind of distortion, I think, that has taken place or you might call it a partial or a partial good news that we hear preached from time to time. And today, we're going to call this the gospel of the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. <laughs> right? You see, part of the reason there is significant question out there about what a Christian is is because this gospel of the minimum entrance requirement. Under this way of thinking, Jesus is, Jesus is, uh, follow, following Jesus is not about a way of life at all that encompasses everything about you. It's just a few propositional beliefs that one needs to have in order to get into the great amusement park in the sky, right? It's true. And if I'm being totally honest with you, this is not the gospel that Jesus preached. And I'm hoping to show you that today. Jesus did not go around saying, hey, believe these three things about me, and then you're going to be fine. This is not how Jesus went about communicating this good news, this gospel. His gospel was far more holistic than that. It it encompassed uh, so much more than just that. 
when Jesus was going around Galilee recruiting his first followers, he, he walks up to these, couple, these brothers who were a couple of fishermen who would become Peter and his brother. And he says to them, as they're at work, he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? This is a famous thing that Jesus says to Peter. Come follow me, do what I do, learn from me, become my student or my disciple. This was the, this was the invitation that Jesus was giving to these disciples. And when, but there's this problem of the minimum entrance requirement, isn't there? Because when we, when we reduce the gospel down to uh, the minimum entrance, when we re- reduce it down to just a couple things that you need to believe in order to get into heaven when you die, it creates a couple problems, doesn't it? It creates some problems. One pastor that I like a lot, um, his name's John Ortberg, he says this. He says, when churches get the gospel wrong, they produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus's way. You know, Jesus's gospel should lead naturally to the formation of Jesus's disciples. And when we get this wrong, it leads to all kind of confusion, right? Because we have a bunch of people who are consumers of Jesus's merit, who claim to be Christians, yet don't actually follow his way. Now, I'm not trying to pass judgment on who is and who is not in or out, what I'm saying is that the, the message of Jesus was not a message that could be uh, one foot in, one foot out. It was not a message in which you could simply believe a few things and not then embody his teaching. Jesus was, te- was his teaching was to invite everyone to step into a whole new kingdom, a whole new reality, a whole new world. It's like the lights get turned on in Oz, right? And we just can't flip them back off again. And so to assume then that we can have simply, we can just believe a couple things and then, whew, I'm safe, is not Jesus' message at all. It's a kind of bifurcation or a, or a short circuit of the message of Jesus in some significant way. And this is why, if I'm being honest with you, why I have put something in our church's mission statement. You can see it on the back of your envelope. You can see it all over the website. It says, Grace Community Church. It says, pursuing the way of Jesus and proclaiming that he is Lord, pursuing the way of Jesus. Because I really want our church to be the type of church that bucks the gospel of the minimum entrance requirement. I really, really do. I really want our church, our community of Christians, to, uh, to be seen as Jesus followers in a holistic way, in a way that encompasses the whole of our lives. And when people out there in the community talk about us or they're asking questions about what a Christian looks like, they say, well, those people at Grace Community, I don't know what a Christian is, but they sure seem a lot like Jesus to me. This is a different way of following Jesus than I think we will hear in culture at large. This is a different way of categorizing ourselves than, what, than, than all of the ways that Christians are attempted to be categorized out in culture, whether they're Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal or whatever they may be, right? The distinctions, the denominational distinctions don't make so much of a difference to me, to be honest with you. But the thing that makes a difference to me, if you're asking me point blank, what makes all the difference? And I would say, are these people people who are truly with their hearts 
not just uh, consumers of Jesus' merit, but are rather pursuing the way of Jesus with the entirety of their being, with their whole heart. And is that pursuit transforming them? Is it leading to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, when he, when he says that he wants us to be continually transformed into the image, into his image, that is Jesus, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the goal of all of this, the goal of all of this is not simply to get in with the bare minimum. That's not the goal. That's not the point. The goal and the point is to be like Jesus, to pursue his way, to step into this new world that he announced when he first put foot on the scene. This is what the point of being a Christian is. So the question for us today is, okay, how do we do that? (laughs) Great. He's not here, really, right? He can't walk in the back door and teach us how to be his follower. We can't walk around the Dead Sea. We could maybe go to Israel, but that's expensive, right? How are we going to do this? My feet are ugly. I don't even like sandals, right? How how are we going to pursue Jesus' way? How are we going to follow him? And this brings us to our new sermon series for today that is really going to, and this sermon series, this, uh, you can call it a sermon series or you can call it a Bible study, but more than anything, it was just uh, impressed on my heart that if we're really going to follow Jesus, if we're really going to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus well, we have to look to the Sermon on the Mount. Is that any, everybody? Who's familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Raise your hand. If you're not, that's fine. That's totally fine. The Sermon on the Mount is going to take us from now, from the beginning of January, all the way through um, Palm Sunday. So we're going to be in this book for three or two and a half, three months. Uh, and I really want to dive into the meat of it. I really want to dive into the meat of the Sermon on the Mount. And the truth of the matter is, is that many Christians, many Christians are naive about this little sermon that Jesus gave. Many Christians are naive about the central moral, ethical teachings of Jesus that are taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Most of us uh, have snippets of it in our brains, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we're not all that familiar with it. A recent recent Gallup poll uh, asked Christian people, uh, who wrote the Sermon on the Mount, and over 50%, or who gave the Sermon on the Mount, and 50% of those Christians polled couldn't tell you who it was, whether it was Jesus or Paul or whoever, right? One poll said that 12% of people thought it was called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave it while mounted on a horse, right? There is a great level of confusion about what the Sermon on the Mount is and why it's so important. So, that's what we're going to do over the next coming months. We're going to dig into this rich text that teaches us not just what to believe, but what to be. How to follow Jesus with the whole of our lives, how to pursue his way, and how to be his people. We want to master this sermon and be mastered by it. We want, to, we want to hear and do what Jesus says, because this is what it means to be people of the way. This is what it means to be a Christian person.
This is what it means to be a Christian church, to look at this, uh, to look particularly at the Sermon on the Mount, to look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and take them seriously, to take them seriously. And that's what I aim to do with all of you over the next couple months. Is that okay? So my encouragement to you is to read the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in Matthew 5 and goes through Matthew uh, chapter 7. My encouragement to you would be to read it, maybe read it weekly. Uh, I'm going to put some resources up on the website this week that are some good historic studies of the Sermon on the Mount that you can uh, look at and order and find, and so you can dig into this text over the next couple of months. I want, I want us to be participatory in this regard, to really dig into the text, to figure it out, to try to find um, the heart, the meat, the vitality of it, and see what the Spirit might be saying to you or to us through this text. Can we do that this year? You don't have to but just nod now and then walk out and go, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. So, next week we are going to begin at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But this week we're going to begin at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because I'm contradictory and I like to do things like that. So, the text that uh, Jesse read for us today was out of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. Uh, And this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. This is the last thing he says after all of the other things that Jesus said. And I just want to give you a brief uh, summation of the topics that are covered in the Sermon on the Mount before we hop into our text today. So Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, and there's, uh, the other gospel writers take parts of the Sermon on the Mount and they, they communicate it, but nobody gives it in one big chunk like Matthew does. But in Matthew's uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes and we have the Lord's Prayer, right? Two very famous texts. We have teachings on personal relationship, if we should or should not be violent, worry, marriage, teachings on the treatment, how, how we ought to treat our enemies, treatment of the poor, handling of our finances, teachings about judging others, all under the rubric, all under the heading of what life lived under the rule and reign of God should look like, what a life lived in the way of Jesus should look like. And if you want to know Jesus' ethic of life, right, if you wanted to know his philosophy of life, if you want the most clear and concise teachings about what Jesus lived out himself and what he taught his disciples to live out in this kingdom of God, you have to look at the Sermon on the Mount. There's no other place that is as clear or as concise. And Jesus concludes this kind of wide-ranging and powerful sermon, so much so that he had to sit down while he was giving it, um, People didn't preach standing up in Jesus' day, actually, which I wish was still the case. Uh, But he concludes this grand and important Sermon on the Mount with this little tiny parable. But unlike the majority of Jesus' parables, this one is completely unambiguous. It's it's completely and utterly clear. We know exactly what Jesus is attempting to get get across to his followers with this verse. And in verse, in the reason we know that with this little parable, and the reason we know that is because he says in verse 24 exactly what it's all about. In verse 24, he says, "Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine," so Jesus is talking about anybody who heard, who just heard the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because this is the concluding statement. Anyone who hears these words of mind, these words of mine, and puts them into practice, 
is like a man who built his house on the rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine, he is talking about people who hear and know and put into practice what he has just said, who enact it. The person who does that is a wise man, is a wise man or woman, right? We all get the analogy. We all get the analogy that's given to us in this text, right? Build your house on stable footing, and it can withstand the storms of life. There's no ambiguity here. We know what Jesus is saying. Building your life upon Jesus and his teachings, and like we sang about in our last song, will be like, uh, and if you build your life on that, it'll be like built on like this solid rock that can't be moved or destroyed by life's circumstances. It's an encouragement, but it's also a kind of promise, isn't it? A promise that if you actually set on this journey of following Jesus, you will not be let down by it. You will not be let down by these teachings. You will not be let down by venturing, by risking, by living in the kingdom of God. So as we finish today, I just want to make a couple quick observations about this text. I want to draw from it a little bit and talk about a couple ideas that I think are important for us leading into the rest of the sermon that we're going to cover over the, over the next number of weeks. And uh, particularly, I want to talk about what Jesus means when he says, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? Okay. So the first observation I want to talk about is that living life in the way of Jesus is not about head knowledge, it's not about head knowledge, and I've hit on this a little bit already, but have you ever met a person who was really, really smart, who's quite intelligent, they were very capable in their job, they seemed, really, they seemed really with it, but they made horrible life decisions, right? Have you ever met anybody who was vastly intelligent, and yet their personal life was just shambles all the time, Right? And you're going, you're so smart. Why can't you figure this out, right? Well, you have so much head knowledge. You have so much understanding. But yet, you can't put into practice that knowledge. You can't, you can't enact it in your life, right? You can't embody it in your person. You know, here's something that I know to be true. I know exactly how to turn myself into a physical specimen. I could, that's a joke. Uh, geez, guys, you think I'm being serious about that? Uh, I know exactly how to do it, right? I know exactly how much kale I need to eat a day and how many push-ups I need to do in order to, to become like an Adonis, right? Like, I get it. I, I, I don't need any more knowledge about how to do that in order to do it. Just need to do it, right? I just need to actually go and do that. I just need to do the curls, and I need to do the, and I need to like make kale chips for my snack every other night, which I hate because Ashley makes them sometimes and they're horrible, <laughs> right? And I, I would get there, but I clearly don't want to, right? I clearly don't want to. I want to do something else with my life, maybe. Uh, I, I, I can have all the head knowledge I want, right? But I actually have to go about doing the work. I actually have to go about doing the stuff. And when Jesus says, those who build their house upon my teachings, what he is saying is, this is not 
primarily about the things that you know. The Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about the things that you know. Now, there are some teachings of Jesus that might be very novel to you and probably hard for you to understand. And honestly, that when you first hear them will sound like, I don't think that's good. That's how radical the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are. But in order to get the benefit, one must put those teachings into practice, Jesus says. In order to have a life that won't be swallowed up by the next storm, you have to actually put into practice the teachings of Jesus. You have to actually build your life upon the foundation of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to actually do it, is what he's saying there. It doesn't matter how much of his merit you consume. If you don't go about the work of doing the Sermon on the Mount, of pursuing the way of Jesus, when the storm comes, your, your house will still probably be built on sand, right? The, the reality of what Jesus is saying is kind of hard for us to take. We don't, we don't like it because we don't like people telling us what to do, right? I don't like anybody telling me what to do, really. And Jesus is saying here, if you, want your, if you want your life to be stable, if you want it to be secure, in, a, in, a, in, a, in this security is not like financial security, and we'll talk about that in a second, but if you want it to be secure in a kingdom type of way, then you need to build your life on these things. You need to make them a part of yourself. And it doesn't matter how much you know about them. It matters what you do with them. You could memorize the Sermon on the Mount. You could memorize it and know it and repeat it by heart, but if you don't do any of what it says, it does not matter. It does not matter. It does not matter. And what Jesus wants here and what he wants throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is to transform not just our minds, but our hearts and our actions. He wants to, he wants to move us from this place of just like, intellectual assent to this place of actual doing. And in America, this is very difficult for us because American people are highly cognitive, aren't we? We believe that to know something is the highest good. So if I, if I know all 50 states, that's a good thing, right? But if I've just lived in all 50 states and I don't know where I lived, that's not a good thing. But that knowledge is, right? That knowledge is experiential rather than just head knowledge. And Christianity, particularly in the West, has moved into this, this area where it's just about head knowledge. It's just about acquiring uh, theological truths about how I should be and act and do in the world. And it has nothing to do or very little to do with actually living this gospel out, with living this truth out. And the truth of the matter is, and the thing that if we take Jesus' word seriously here, what we have to soberly look at is the reality that if we don't take his word seriously, if we don't actually do what he, he's, he instructs us to do, then in some real and true sense, we are not dwelling in the kingdom of God that he came proclaiming. The opportunity is open and available to us, but we have to take him up on his word in order to step into that place. Does this make sense? I hope so. This is what Jesus is saying, that his teaching is not just head knowledge. It must be embodied. It must be lived out. And now, the question that often arises right here when we talk like this is, 
well, Nick, what about grace? Isn't God's gift to us grace, right? We can't do anything to earn his goodness or earn his love or his merit or his favor. We have to simply believe on it and receive it as grace. Nick, I'm living in grace. I'm golden, right? I've received God's merit. I've received his favor. And now I'm walking in grace right out the front door. Pass the donuts. Grab three as you leave. Keep going. What, what we need to understand when we talk about grace is that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn your own forgiveness. You cannot earn, by sheer force of will, God's pleasure with you. He's already, he's already given you that, right? But there is effort involved. You see, this is part of what this gospel of the minimum entrance requirement has confused us into believing, that if I just believe a few things and stand on his merit and, exe- and receive it as grace, then it doesn't really matter and I'll go, right? And I don't actually have to look like him. I don't actually have to be a person of the way. I just have to believe. And what Jesus is saying here is quite clear. That, yes, you have to believe. And, yes, this is all grace. Because, remember, and we'll look at this a little bit more next week, when Jesus comes, what he comes proclaiming is that in your midst the kingdom of God is present. You didn't do anything to bring it. It's just here. Right? You just need to participate with it. That's grace. If God, very God of very God, incarnates himself and shows up on the earth and says, everything I got is right here for you, just take it and walk with me, that's grace. But we still need to walk. Does this make sense? We still need to walk. And that is why there is this doing component to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We still need to participate. We still need to step into the new world that Christ has made available to us. Does this make sense? Those of us in the world who just see grace as this kind of free gift that I just get and it's a free ticket that I ride all the way, that's what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace. It's a grace that uh, loses without its foundation, without its substance. It's just, it's just a one-way ticket. It's just, it's just the minimum entrance requirement. It's not the real, grounded, significant, meaningful stuff. Does this make sense? Then the reality of it is, is that cheap grace will never be good for you. It will, it, will never, it will never satisfy your soul. Because remember, we talked about it a few weeks. Jesus' invitation to us is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Step into the goodness of the world that I am unfolding now. Live fully and freely in the light and life of Jesus. This is the invitation. And the way in and to that is the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is. And that's what we are called to do. All right? So that's observation number one. Observation number two from this text is that living life in the way of Jesus does not guarantee, does not guarantee that your life will be easy. This one's no fun, right? It doesn't guarantee that your life will be easy. Notice in birth, in, both in verse 25 and 27, rain falls on both houses. Rain falls on both the house of the wise and upon the foolish. The difference is what their house is built on or upon, right? We cannot avoid trouble in our world. We can't avoid it. 
We can't get away from it. For some of us, life will be harder than others of us. We can't always explain all of the reasons why that is the way it is. Jesus seems to say that your life will not be easy. It will endure storms and hardships. It will be difficult. And to be honest with you, there is a belief out there in the world, particularly in the Christian world, that as a follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, that means that at the very least, your chances of bad stuff happening to you go way down, right? This is, there's kind of a belief out there that if, if you follow Jesus, life should be at least 25% better than everybody else's life in terms of just the, the functional reality, the things that happen to you, right? The things that occur. Like if you follow Jesus, your, 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 uh, your water heater is like completely non-susceptible, right? <laughs> it's totally great. No, no water heater problems. And this is why people walk around laying hands and putting holy water and anointing their water heaters, right? Because they think, if I'm a Christian, this won't break. This is great, right? Uh, People who believe this have clearly never read the book of Job. Seriously. we've, We've never read the whole corpus of the scriptures and looked at them honestly with sober minds and seen the fact that bad stuff happens to everybody. Right? In the Old Testament, we read that, rain, that uh, rain falls on both the just and the unjust. That God uh, is not about the business of saving Christians from the bad stuff. He's not rescuing us from life's circumstances. And early Christians understood this perfectly. And the reason they understood this is because they were always getting killed and exiled and ran out of town and stoned, Right? And so if all of that stuff is happening to you, you can't really have a theology that says um, I'm, there's not going to be a flood that's going to wipe out my house. You can't really have a theology that says um, I might have cancer, but I'm not going to die of it. You can't really have a theology that says um, something bad might happen and we might have a, have a tough financial situation. You can't have a theology that says that if you're constantly being, all your money's being taken away, and then you're being let off and murdered, right? Seriously. Honestly. So, what is Jesus saying here then? What, what is he saying here then? If he's saying that the, that the storm will come, but yet your house will stand, what is he saying? Because the truth of the matter is Christians still die of cancer. I have friends I have two, two friends who, in college, young men, tra- training to be pastors, died of cancer at 21. They came in with me. What happened there, right? Was, there, was that foundation built on the sand? What, what's going on? The, the reality of this, and we have to look, at the, look, at, look to the core of it. What Jesus is saying here is that your life is built on the rock not because everything is always going to turn out all right. And we have to, guys, we have to process this stuff before the bad stuff happens. Because then otherwise we're just like, we're just like turning over, right? We're, we are, we'll just be like, a leaf blowing in the wind in the midst of a storm. If we don't process these things before they happen, there's no, there's no hope that we can actually find uh, solace, comfort, direction within it. What Jesus is saying here is not that your life will be perfect. 
What Jesus is saying here is that your life will be held within the kingdom of God. And if God holds your life, and if he controls everything, take my life. It doesn't matter because there will come a day when everything will be put right and this body and all its brokenness will be resurrected, right? This is what Paul says when he says, uh, when he, when he says to, to be present from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I stay here, I got good work to do. And if they chop my head off, which they did, I'm still good. Because you can't do anything to somebody who has this, uh, this assurance. You can't do anything to, to somebody whose founder of their faith was resurrected from the dead after being crucified. You can't do anything to those people. You can't, you can't wound them in any significant way that they, that they haven't already identified with. So much so that when Christians endured the suffering that they so often endured in the first few centuries, what they would say is not that that suffering was bad, but that it helped them identify with the sufferings of Jesus. This is, they actually turned it on its head and said, in some, in some sense, the suffering in which I'm enduring right now is a good thing because it helps me, I, it helps me identify, it helps me, it helps me connect back into the suffering of my Lord, even. Fascinating, isn't it? But the question then is, why, why then do we have to practice the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we have to practice it in order to get that firm foundation? And this is something about our brains, I think, that Jesus knew and that neuroscience is revealing to us now that unless you embody a practice, you don't actually believe it. The way to teach yourself how to love is not just to sit in a room and go, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love. The way to teach yourself how to love is to go out and love, to do concrete acts of service, to, to do, and we'll look at this in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus uh, proposes transforming initiatives, things you ought to do to transform your heart so it's the type of heart that depends on God and not on other things, right? This is why he tells you to go the extra mile and do things like that because it actually, in the doing, in the physical embodying of those practices, it transforms the way we, the way we think. It transforms our heart. It transforms what we love, and it helps us to be citizens of the kingdom of God rather than, in the words of Paul, citizens of the kingdom of this world. It's what it does. The only way to love your enemy is to do tangible and concrete things to love your enemy, like pray for them and bring them lunch, right? And do service, do works of service towards them. This is the only way to do it because you won't just sit in your house by yourself and, and naturally have love for your enemy sweep over you. It's not going to happen. And so, this is what Jesus says, that in order to have this life that, that finds its dependency in and upon God, in order to have this life that sees itself as being wholly devoted to the things of, uh, of Jesus, in order to have that type of life and in order to not have the type of mental state that when the storm comes, we're just completely and utterly wrecked. In order to do that, you actually have to put the Sermon in the Mount into practice. You actually have to do these things so that your heart will be more and more transformed, that you're walking in this continual state of transformation in which the things that you once loved and once depended on grow kind of more dim in your heart and in your mind and the things of the kingdom of God grow brighter. This is why we practice these things. This is why Christians have what they call spiritual disciplines, right? And we'll talk a little bit about those too because these are the things that, that, um, 
that train our heart, that teach our minds what to love. And if we don't do them when the winds blow, when they come, we'll just be swept aside. We'll be swept on down the river. But if we practice what Jesus' teachings, if we follow really and truly in his way, if we do it the way he said, instructed us to do it, when the winds come, when the waters rise, when life goes in a direction that you did not want it to go in, you can say things like, it is well with my soul. Because you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the God who you've been following, the God around whom you've been ordering your lives, will keep it and will hold it and loves it and will bring it to fruition, will bring your, will bring your very life to its, uh, to its apex. Maybe not even in this world. Maybe not in, maybe you might die. Most of us might, probably will, right? <laughs> apart, from, apart from some things happening, most of us will. But we'll bring it to, this, to full flower one day. The, the analogy that Jesus uses is about the kingdom of God, and he uses this analogy right before he begins the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to, he's, before he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to describe to people what the kingdom of God is. And what he says is it's like this, um, he's like it's this mustard seed that flowers into a bush, right? You've heard this before. And the reason he uses this analogy is not because and you've heard it, the faith starts small, and it does very often, and then grows big, right? So your faith, get, your faith starts falling, and as you put your faith into practice, then you can do big stuff. This, that's not what that analogy is all about. What Jesus is saying is there is that I have begun the reign of God. It's here in its fullness, but right now it looks like a mustard seed. But it will grow, and there will be a day when you will see the fullness of the kingdom of God in all its glory and beauty in your very midst. And this is the promise. This is the promise that Jesus holds out for what the kingdom of God is, how it will function, what it will do. And so for us here today, as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, and maybe you're in this room and you're like, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Here's something I always, here's something I always encourage people to do. A, look at it, read it, and try and do a couple things because maybe it'll be good for you, right? But the reality, the reality of our lives, the, rea- the, the truth of who we are and the truth of what Christians do is we practice what Jesus told us to do. And very often, we don't do it the way we should, and there's grace for it. We're, we're not called to be perfect. God doesn't expect perfection. No one in this place is perfect. We are all, in our own unique way, super jacked up. But that does not remove the responsibility of us our own personal responsibility and our, our responsibility as a community to, to pursue the way of Jesus and to be made like him so that we can step every day a little bit more into the fullness of what God has for us as people and for our community. And here's the thing, folks, folks, folks. If we do it together over these next couple of months, I know, I don't just believe, I know it will transform us. It will change our hearts individually, and I, I, I don't just believe, I know, it will transform this place. We become a people that follow the way of Jesus, that pursue his way, take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, and follow him. 
It will transform our own lives. We'll, we'll walk through this life, no matter how hard it is, with more joy and more love and more goodness and more grace, even if our lives go down from here. And it will transform this place because there is nothing more attractive than a church alive with the kingdom of God. Nothing in this whole world. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that as we uh, set out on this journey of looking at the Sermon on the Mount, that your uh, spirit would guide us through this process. Father, we ask that you would help us to look at our lives soberly, that you'd help us to look at our lives honestly, that you'd help us, me in particular, to, to, to take honest assessment of those places in my lives where, where I have not taken the words of Jesus seriously, whatever that might be. Help us to hold the mirror of the scriptures up to ourselves that we might follow you well this year, in 2018. Jesus, would you build us into a house in which you can dwell by your spirit, that we might be a people of your spirit, and that we might communicate the goodness and love and grace of this God out into the world, not just as brain knowledge, but as embodied realities in the way we act, think, and live. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.